Bible with you tonight, please turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. So here we are. We've almost come to the end of our series through Revelation. After tonight, we'll have four more sermons and then we'll be done in his sermon on this passage. Pastor Sam Storms recounted an event that took place, if you'll remember, just over seven years ago in February of 2015. Twenty Egyptian Christians were lined up on a beach in Libya wearing orange jumpsuits. After each one refused to renounce their faith in Jesus Christ, one by one, they were all savagely beheaded on video. Their bodies weren't returned to Egypt to be properly buried until three years later in 2018. These were our brothers. These were men of whom Jesus would say the world is not worthy of having. Their bodies suffered horrible indignity. But the very moment they passed from this life to the next, their souls immediately entered the presence of their Lord Jesus Christ. And there as priests of God, they joined with him in ruling and reigning over the affairs of heaven and earth. And as we read last week, when Jesus returns to this earth at the end of human history, they will accompany him and be among the first to receive their glorified and resurrected bodies. Now, how do I know that's true? Well, because the Bible tells me so. In verse 4 of chapter 20 tonight, we'll read, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Their souls, remember that. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. If we've been listening in Revelation, we'll see how this is a composite description of everything we've been seeing about those murdered in Jesus up to this point. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. It's my belief that chapter 20 verses 1 through 6 describe the blessed experience of all who have died with faith in Jesus as they enter into the kingdom into what is known as the intermediate state. That's the fancy term for it. The intermediate state is the experience of all believers, but especially martyrs who die on earth, but spiritually continue to live in the presence of the reigning Christ. They're in that intermediate state between death and the second coming for each one of them. They share the reign of Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords for a thousand years. Now, Revelation 20 is the most debated chapter in the whole book, in much of American evangelicalism, maybe even in the Bible. What's amazing is that we have all these different views and so much passionate opinion over something that's mentioned one time in ten verses in the whole Bible. The debate centers on the meaning of the first resurrection. What is that? When is that? And then, of course, the 1,000 years during which believers share in the rule of Christ the King. I know there are many interpretations of this passage. I used to hold to a much different one. So rather than describing all of them, which would take a very long time, tonight I'm just going to preach what I believe this passage teaches. Some will disagree, and that's okay. That's all right. But we'll walk through what John is saying here. I ascribe to a view called amillennialism, because that's the view I believe Revelation most clearly teaches among all the different options. Now, unfortunately, 
That label is misleading because technically it means no millennium, like apolitical or amoral, but I don't believe that at all. I most certainly believe in the reality of a literal millennial kingdom and reign of Jesus Christ. I believe the millennium John sees, however, is happening right now in heaven, simultaneously with the age of the church on earth. It consists of those who have died in Christ and entered into his glory in the intermediate state alongside or parallel to the church's existence on the earth from Jesus's ascension to his return. I believe the millennium in this way is now that Christ is reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, the present age of the church on earth between the first and second comings of Jesus is simultaneous with the current state of believers who have died in the faith that are with Jesus. So I disagree with the premillennial view of a literal 1,000 year reign of Jesus on the earth, this earth as it is right now that comes after the second coming. I don't believe that's what scripture teaches. There most certainly is a millennium and Christ rules over all, but this reign is not precisely 1,000 years. We don't read numbers like that almost anywhere else in the Bible, particularly in Revelation. I don't believe it's precisely a thousand years in length. We're well beyond that since uh, the ascension of Jesus. And I believe it's completely spiritual. That is, it's not earthly. It's not happening on the earth. Not visible or physical, but still very literal. Remember, he sees souls, not bodies. So we aren't looking forward to the future when at some point Jesus will finally reign. He does so now since he has ascended. And again, that's the perspective of the whole book of Revelation. That's why the book starts where it does in chapter 1. This is where we are now, John is saying. This is Jesus right now as I'm writing to you and everything flows out of this. The millennium is the heavenly reign of Jesus. It speaks specifically to the blessings of believers in this intermediate state. All of our loved ones who have died in Christ before his return, they are in this intermediate state in heaven, the millennium. As it is described here in verses 4 to 6, it refers to the present reign of the souls of deceased believers with Jesus in heaven. And so I believe that there will be an ongoing progression in the world of evil that continues until the second coming of Jesus. Human history will get progressively worse until he comes back. As a result, the church of Jesus Christ will experience increasing widespread oppression, tribulation, suffering, persecution, and even as many already have been and are being now martyred for their faith. I absolutely believe that the people of God will reign on the earth in fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament, but it won't be this earth. It will be the new earth that is described for us later in Revelation 21 and 22. It's there that we will live and reign with Christ forever. Revelation has taught us how to read it by describing the flow of history for us in three cycles of judgment that climax each time in the final battle and defeat of Satan as well as with the return of Christ to judge. Here, after the description of his return in the last battle in Revelation 19, Revelation 20 takes us back once again as it has been doing 
to the beginning of the New Testament era and then recapitulates the entire present age. This time, once again, from the view of heaven. What is the current state of all the martyrs that were crying out? What is happening to them now? It's describing the same period the rest of the book has been describing, but from another different perspective, another different camera angle. The binding of Satan in verses 1 through 3 already occurred in the ministry of our Lord Jesus, and the 1,000-year reign in verses 4 through 6 is describing in symbolic terms the entire age between the first and second coming of Jesus as it is in heaven. The 1,000-year millennium is not something that comes about chronologically in the future, but is happening simultaneously in heaven during the history of the church on the earth. This number 1,000 refers to the unknown span of time on earth between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. Now, before I continue, before you flip out and leave, I didn't make this up, okay? I really didn't, and you would be shocked if you found out how many hold to this view since America has basically been told there's only one way to see it, and if you don't see it like that, you're some type of heretic. After all, how would you sell all those horrible left-behind books if we knew that wasn't true? One of the main reasons I don't believe chapter 20 follows chronologically in history after chapter 19 is because of what happens at the time of His second coming in chapter 19. Okay? So before we get into this, let's think about this. In verses 11 through 21 last week of 19, we saw that all the unbelieving nations and peoples on the earth were destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ when He returns. That's what we read. When Jesus comes back, it says He will utterly defeat and destroy kings and captains and mighty men, horses and riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, as well as the beast and the false prophet. Later in verse 21, we even read the fact that the rest of mankind were also slain by the sword of Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, ask yourself, why would Satan need to be bound after that? After everyone is dead? Why? What, what's, what's there for him to wreak havoc on? Everybody's gone. Why would he need to be kept from deceiving the nations when in chapter 19 the nations have been completely destroyed at the return of Jesus along with the rest of all humanity? Revelation 20 takes us back again to the beginning of the present church age and describes what is happening in heaven over the course of church history up until the end of all things at the second coming of Jesus. So, since Jesus is presently reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords at the right hand of the Father, which no Christian wants to deny, those who die in faith, especially those who die for their faith, dying the worst way, they are reigning with Him also while the church on earth continues the spread of the gospel to every nation. At His return, Jesus will defeat Satan once and for all and bring all humanity into judgment. Let me pray and we'll get into the text. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You, God, so much for it and for how solid and clear it is on so many things. And Father, I pray tonight that You would Give us the ability, give me the ability to speak clearly from this text. Father, I pray that you help me bring out of it what you breathed into it, nothing more. And God willing, nothing less. But I pray, God, you would help us all to think deeply as we listen. 
I pray, Lord, that Your Spirit would enable each one of us to hear and to consider and to believe Your promise. And this we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read the first ten verses here of Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, one of the most pressing questions is, how can we say that Satan is bound right now? Since the New Testament is clear that he's still very active on the earth. You see that all through the New Testament, even after the ascension of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, just to give some examples of the fact that Satan is still actively doing things in the world. So how is he bound? Does the Bible describe him as, describe him as bound in the sense that he can't do anything? That's not what John says. John tells us explicitly to what extent Satan is bound, or more clearly, precisely what it is that he's bound to be kept from doing. In verse 3, he says Satan is bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Later in verse 8, it says when he is released from the abyss, Satan will come out to deceive the nations, which are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The Bible's been... Revelation has been talking about one final war. We're back to it now. So notice what John says and does not say. He does not say that Satan was bound so that he could no longer persecute Christians. Or Satan was bound so that he could no longer wreak havoc and schemes on the church and disrupt and threaten her unity. He doesn't say that Satan is bound so that he can no longer disguise himself as an angel of light. John does not say that Satan is bound from shooting flaming arrows at us, like Ephesians 6, or that he isn't able to thwart the Apostle Paul's plans back in 1 Thessalonians 2.18 and other people trying to spread the mission and plant churches. Satan has been bound right now in this age for one specific purpose, so that he should not any longer deceive the nations in verse 3. Right now, 
While the gospel is spreading, Satan is being kept specifically from mobilizing an international rebellion against the people of God that results in that final great battle that ends, remember, very quickly. And we would say, yes, but isn't persecution and martyrdom happening right now? Yes, but has that stopped the spread of the gospel to the nations? Think of how far removed from the Roman Empire in the first century we are when Christians were being killed in mass. And here we are in Marshall County, West Virginia, preaching the gospel they preached. So Satan can't stop it, even though he's killing and persecuting. If anything, that persecution has emboldened it. That's why we have statements like the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The language John uses in verses one through three here reveals that it will be impossible for Satan to mount this worldwide rebellion against the church Revelation has been talking about that effectively shuts it down during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ in heaven. On earth, while he's reigning there, proof of his reign here is the global advance of the church to all nations. This binding is related to that particular aspect of Satan's scheming in the world and God's binding is absolute and invincible until he releases the ancient dragon one last time to do that. Basically, what the devil wants to do and currently cannot do is incite Armageddon early before God's time so that Satan can dictate the future because he knows what happens if he can't. He knows God's plan and he wants to ruin it, but he can't. Why? Beloved, precisely because the exalted Christ, through the work of an angelic being in verses 1 through 3, has temporarily stripped Satan of all his ability to gather all the nations on the earth for the final battle. Beloved, remember the words of Jesus. Back in John 12, 31 and 32, that at his death and resurrection, because he is going to die, Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. That's what you and I live in. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus says it happens now at his death. Because Jesus will give up his life on the cross. What is he going to do? Draw all people to himself. And Satan can do nothing to stop that from happening. Satan was bound at the cross so that he couldn't keep that from happening. So The final global assault of every nation against Jesus and his church that is coming will only come when the binding God has put on that aspect of Satan's work is lifted. Beloved, during the age of the gospel's advance to every tribe and language and people and nation, Satan is on God's leash. When he finally is released right before the second coming of Jesus, he'll send out his demonic legions, as we learned back in 1614, to go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. The New Testament letters tell us very clearly that Satan can and will do a lot in this present age, but John reveals here he will never be able, quote, to incite and organize the unbelieving nations of the world in a final catastrophic assault against the, ter- against the church until such time as God in his providence so determines, end quote. That event which remember the Lord himself will end in a moment with the fire of heaven in verse 9, will only come at the very end of the age. John doesn't say that the binding of Satan eliminates all of his activity, but completely limits it in one particular era. 
or area, sorry. And during the millennial reign of Jesus, that binding is unbreakable. The sole purpose of the binding in Revelation 20 is to prevent Satan from deceiving the nations into a war with God, which would be not just premature, but futile anyway. This is what Satan was doing before the first coming of Jesus. Remember, all the nations, with the exception of Israel, were deceived by Satan, prevented from embracing the truth, with a few notable exceptions like Naaman of Syria and things like this. But the universal expansion and embrace of the gospel in all nations after the coming of Christ through the Great Commission, which is the first thing he says once he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He's not sharing authority with Satan. That is the direct result of the fact that he's been cast out, Satan's binding, and also the direct result of the reign of Jesus. So listen carefully to the words of Paul in Acts 26, 16 through 18, in light of the command he had received to take the gospel to the Gentiles from the risen and reigning Christ. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Beloved, do you see that? The nations of the world are portrayed as being in darkness with respect to the gospel of Jesus. They had been blinded and deceived under the dominion and domain of Satan before Jesus came and lived and died and was raised. But now, as a result of his first coming, that global ability to deceive and keep in the dark is over. Now, the Gentiles can receive the forgiveness of sins and their portion in the divine inheritance or we wouldn't be here. The binding of Satan means that during this age, the age of the gospel that began with Jesus' first coming and ends at the second coming, the devil's influence on the nations has been disabled so that he cannot prevent the extension of the church among the nations through the mission. He can't do that. He's doing everything else he's doing, and he's active everywhere, and you see his fingerprints everywhere, but he can't do that. He can't bring about Armageddon before God says it's time. And Armageddon is described as the gathering of the whole world in a final battle against Jesus and the church. Satan is being kept from using the nations to destroy the church until God says he can. Right now, everywhere the church is stomped on, it seems like it spreads and thrives. The proof, again, is us. This gospel has made it thousands of years through every attempt to end it to Marshall County, West Virginia. To Moundsville. Jesus was thinking about Moundsville when he lived and died and rose again. And the people here in the Ohio Valley, knowing that Satan wasn't going to be able to do anything to keep the gospel from getting here despite all the opposition to it. As William Hendrickson says, in this sense, the church conquers the nations rather than the nations conquering the church. Beloved, realize how much of an end time glorious miracle and sign the salvation of sinners from every nation really is. That's the miracle. All the other stuff was child's play for Jesus. Saving dead sinners, that's the miracle. And how, think about how amazing now the work of the cross actually is. It didn't postpone everything. It started everything. Satan still works to blind unbelievers in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, but he can't restrict 
the expansion of the gospel to every tribe, language, people, and nation. No matter how hard he tries, he won't be able to keep it from one nation, from one tribe, from one people, from one language. So he might win some occasional battles, but the war belongs to the Lamb who was slain, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So let's get our bearings here. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 6 are telling us that during the course of history in the present church age, Satan has been bound so that he can't orchestrate a global assault against the church. During that time, all who died having believed in Jesus join him in heaven. Their souls, their bodies are in the ground or wherever they were taken. They join him in heaven in the intermediate state where they share his reign and rule over the affairs of the earth. Just before the return of Jesus... The binding on Satan will be loosed and he will once again deceive the unbelieving nations, every single nation but the church, into launching a war against the church. Revelation calls this war Armageddon. At that time, Jesus Christ will return from heaven with his saints and utterly destroy all of them. Satan will be judged, cast into the lake of fire. All the unbelieving dead will be raised up to stand judgment. And precisely because they did not have faith in Jesus, they too will be cast into the lake of fire to suffer the second death. Do we see what John is doing here to encourage believers who face the threat of martyrdom? Which of the seven letters he wrote, Smyrna was in the middle of this. The rest would have been before too much longer. He's saying, listen, although we may even be killed for our faith and die physically, In the teeth of the beast, we will live spiritually in the presence of the Lamb, which is what John means by the first resurrection, that of believers who have died in the faith before his return, their souls coming to life in heaven with him. He was encouraging the churches to whom he was writing at that time, again, particularly the church in Smyrna that was facing death back in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, do you remember what he said to them? Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, that's a a long period of time. For 10 days, you will have tribulation in Smyrna. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, these are terms you're hearing now in Revelation 20. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Look at how effectively chapter 20 reminds us of what Revelation has been saying about believers who die in the Lord. Martyrdom is the result of steadfast faith in chapter 2, verse 10. The faithful are promised the crown of life there. Also, the faithful martyrs will not suffer the second death back in chapter 2, verse 11, which is precisely what John is describing here in chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. This is something they were going to experience who lost their lives for the Lord. This happens to those in Smyrna and beyond who are and will be killed for their faith. This is precisely, Revelation 20 is precisely what those earlier verses were speaking of. Remember, if if you come to Revelation thinking that you know everything about the end times, you're going to have to squeeze Revelation into that scheme to make it fit. And that's not what Revelation is doing. Revelation is telling us what all the prophecy in the Bible actually means. 
So, also consider chapter 3, verse 21. That the one who overcomes will be enthroned with Jesus and reign with him. That's what we see in chapter 20. He's talking to them. That will happen to them. So it can't be out into the future for a thousand literal years after they're all already dead. Christians who die don't slip into some unconscious state. We enter into life in the intermediate state between His two comings where we are enthroned with Christ and rule with Him. The proof of Jesus' reign right now is that sinners are being saved. That's why the Gospel is so important. It tells us that the end has come and the final day is all the more closer. Both John and Jesus in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, thought of the intermediate state as souls that came to life beyond death, a resurrection. This resurrection is described as an experience of enthronement with Jesus. They are reigning with Him. That is why in Revelation 20, He also describes the intermediate state of believers as souls living and reigning with Christ. One question we haven't addressed yet, though, is, is this 1,000-year period literal or Figurative. Now, many, because again, you, you come to this passage with these preconceived notions already, and there have been all these promises made, and we've never seen them, as far as we know, fulfilled. So they'd have to take place somewhere, and when we come to Revelation 20, we say, ah, we'll, we'll put them in there. That's when all the promises uh, will come true. So many insist it has to mean literally 1,000 years, because that's what it says, Right? That's the argument. Well, that's what it says. Beloved, if you're going to do that, then just be consistent. And if you don't hate your family, you're inconsistent. Right? That's what Jesus said to do. So we have to understand what the Bible means more than we understand what it says. And it means what it says, but we don't understand how to do that until we have the Holy Spirit. So that's not a clever way to deny the Bible. Please understand what I'm saying is, is that We have to be respectful of the words on the page in light of the context. Always. Always. Now, for one thing, for one thing, we've seen repeatedly in Revelation that almost every time a number is mentioned, it's symbolic of a theological truth. But also, it is very rare in Scripture, period, that 1,000 is ever taken literally with mathematical precision. And this is true where the context is not related to actual time. Psalm 50:10, Song of Solomon 4:4, Joshua 23:10, Isaiah 60:22. I'm not. You don't need to go look at those. By all means, do that. Hear the recording and write those down if you want. But there are times where 1,000 is clearly not referring to chronological time. But this also applies to when it is related to actual time, like Deuteronomy 7:9, First Chronicles 16:15, Psalm 84:10, etc. Here's what I'm saying. Think of just one. We're going to use just one example from the verses I just gave you of how we're meant to see this number 1000 and how it's working in Revelation. In Psalm chapter 50, verse 10, we are told what? That God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You see a thousand twice in Revelation 20. Now, does that mean and does anybody take it to mean that on the 1001st hill, There is cattle that don't belong to Jesus. No. Because we know what it's trying to do. The point of the psalmist using that type of language is to say, listen, there are tons of cattle on tons of hills and God owns all of them. Right? That's the point 
of that. So why is John using the number a thousand here? Here, the number 1,000 is being used to describe the millennial reign of Jesus because of what's been happening in Revelation, because of how the sacred number 7 is combined with the equally sacred number 3 in Revelation, pointing to the sacred number of holy perfection, which is 10. And if you really wanted to describe perfection and you cubed 10, that's a 1,000. 1,000 is telling us that this reign is absolute perfection for as long as it lasts. Which is what the intermediate state for believers who die before Jesus returns are experiencing. Your loved ones that have gone on in the faith are experiencing the fact that Jesus really does reign over everything. So heaven is way more than reunions, beloved. Way more than that. And it is that, make no mistake. But it's an intermediate state. The saints live and reign with Christ for an exalted and perfect period of time before his return. If we see the parallel between chapter 20, verses 4 and 6, and chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, it further reveals that what's being described here is the same experience of believers who die and enter into the life of this intermediate state. John is describing in both of those texts the experience of the souls of those who have died in Christ During the age of the church. That the location of the millennial reign of Jesus is in heaven. Couldn't be much more explicit than when John uses the word saying he saw thrones here. Now, where have we seen thrones upon which the saints sit in Revelation? In other words, what is the nature of their millennial rule? We read the word thrones 47 times in Revelation. Twice it refers to Satan's throne. Once in 1620, it's talking about the throne of the beast. Then four times it refers to God's throne on the new earth because he's coming down from heaven. But in every other occurrence, the word refers to a throne in heaven, that of God, the father of Christ, the 24 elders, etc., etc. The millennial reign is taking place for believers who have died in heaven. That's where the thrones are. Revelation 21 through 10 is the account of John's vision of the binding of Satan that prevents him from leading the nations to a premature assault on the church before God's appointed time at Armageddon. Because he is restrained like this, the gospel will spread far beyond the borders of Israel to bring salvation to every nation in the world. During this period, John sees the martyred saints who refused to renounce Christ and worship the beast and were killed for it, raised to life together with Christ where their souls are ruling and reigning with the Lord for the duration of the church age on earth. This is the first resurrection, the raising up of souls from death to heaven with Jesus. These blessed saints will never suffer the second death. They'll never suffer it, not judgment, for they reign as priests of God and Christ. Just before the church age ends, as the millennial age is approaching its close, Satan's binding will be loosed by God and he will come out of the abyss to deceive every nation into thinking that an assault on Jesus and his church will work if they all band together. We will finally eliminate God from this earth and all of his cronies, right? But 
they will suffer immediate and humiliating defeat when the Lord Jesus Christ returns from heaven with those believers who have been sharing in his dominion and rule to be united with those believers who are still alive on the earth as he comes down to put an end to all things and we will all be with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth following judgment. It's in verses 7 through 10 that we find when the millennial reign of Jesus reaches its end just before his second coming. Satan is released from his prison. The restraint God has placed on him will be removed and Satan will immediately take steps. He's been waiting to do this, to gather the nations of the earth to make war on the people of God. Now, we may be seeing this at least beginning to unfold in our days. It is getting tighter and tighter. The grip is getting tighter and tighter. This war is the war of Armageddon that we read about earlier in chapter 16 and 19. This is just a, another description of that same battle between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Jesus. Beloved, consider what this implies about mankind. Humanity is not evolving upwardly over time. The moment God releases Satan and deceives the nations, they will gladly follow him. And there are whispers of this in the increasing distaste and disdain for the church and Christians, even in a place where traditionally it was widely embraced and accepted like America. We at least tried to have Christian beginnings, right? And look at us now. Beloved, this means that the ultimate root of sin, as George Eldon Ladd says, and this is so good, is not poverty or inadequate social conditions or an unfortunate environment, although those things certainly exacerbate it. It is, in other words, the ultimate root of sin is the rebelliousness of the human heart. These unbelieving nations are symbolically called Gog and Magog here, and their number is like the sand of the sea, which is standard prophetic language in the Bible for an innumerable multitude. So the final assault on the church is going to look like it's cake for Satan, since the church will look comparatively so small and outnumbered, and Christ has not yet returned. Beloved, look up and don't be afraid. Behind the clouds, a king sits on his horse waiting for the call to charge. And he will come for you. Even though the enemies of Christ's kingdom surround the saints in the beloved city, the city of God, they have absolutely no chance and no hope of defeating Jesus. Now, this is... Also important, there is no biblical basis for thinking of Gog and Magog as Russia or Iran or China or any other single nation on the earth. First, look at the words in the text. Gog and Magog here are clearly made up of the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Already that's more than two. In verse 8, Gog and Magog are a symbol for all the unbelieving nations of the world, united in their opposition to the church of Jesus Christ. That's what God is calling this alliance. But we are God's beloved city. We are His portion all through Revelation. For this reason, the church is referred to as the New Jerusalem, right? Chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 11, verse 2. Coming in chapter 21, verse 10. The defeat of Satan and the destruction of the nations will be quick and final. This fire that comes down from heaven may very well be literal, like that which destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, remember? In any case, it constitutes the total defeat of Satan and his forces for the birds to feast on in chapter 19, right? 
Paul talked about this in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8, which I read earlier when he says that Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Satan and the beast and the false prophet will all be cast into the lake of fire. Now, I don't know how fire, like we know, can hurt spiritual beings, right? But I, I don't know that we have to press the image too far. What it tells us is that the lake of fire and sulfur is a place of horrible pain and suffering. Horrible. The suffering of those who stood in unrepentant opposition to Jesus and God the Father will be endless, beloved. So if there's a, a, an imperative here for us, something for us to do in light of this passage, it's preach the gospel far as people are found. Because final judgment is coming. Beloved, there's really only one conclusion here, isn't there? God wins. He wins. Since Jesus is presently reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords at the right hand of the Father, those who die in faith, especially those who die for their faith, are reigning with Him also while the church on earth continues the spread of the gospel to every nation. This is how Jesus talked this gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony to all the nations, the ethne, the people groups, and then the end will come. Satan will be released. He'll mount the nations in an assault against Jesus and the church, and he'll be obliterated. At his return, after Satan is unleashed to mount his final pointless assault on the church, Jesus will defeat him once and for all and bring all humanity in to judgment. And for all those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior, we will enter the eternal state in the new heavens and the new earth where no sin or evil or pain or suffering or death will ever exist again. And this story of humanity will end at the beginning of eternity where we really, truly will live happily ever after, by the word of Christ.